Hello, everyone, and welcome to Aquapod, where guests share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor, content manager at In-Situ. And today's episode is a bit different from our usual format. Instead of partnering with one of our application development managers to interview a customer, I'm going to be interviewing the ADMs themselves. With me in the studio is Carrie Caslow, our application development manager for surface water, Adam Hobson, our ADM for groundwater, and Brock Houston, our ADM for coastal applications. These experts know their water monitoring applications inside and out. And while Adam has been with the company for some time, first as a consulting hydrologist and now as an ADM, Carrie and Brock are both fairly new to In-Situ, so we thought it would be a great time to have a conversation with all three of them about their work, their experience, and their take on where things are going in the industry. So Carrie, Adam, and Brock, welcome to Aquapod. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Helen. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. It's really great to have you here. This is going to be fun. I've been looking forward to this. And Adam, since you're the most, Uh-oh. quote unquote, senior member of this team, <laughs> please tell us um, what exactly is the role of the ADM at Institute? It's a good question. The application development manager role was created to represent our customers in everything that we do from our manufacturing process to our marketing, to our sales team, to all that, and really contribute to the overall growth of the company. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, makes sense. So that's pretty amazing. So you're working with the customers, you're working with the sales team, you're coordinating with the product managers, you're partnering with the marketing team. Which do you like the best? No, oh, <laughs> putting, putting me on the spot on that one. You know, it really depends. Uh, it depends really on on what we're what we're doing, and 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 I, I think where it's at. For me personally, um, I actually had a real strong interest in marketing um, through school and things like that. I did not go that way and went into you know went into hydrology and geology and and that. But it's certainly something that I I, I really enjoy. So it's been kind of really interesting to 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 work a lot with the marketing team. Uh, but with that said, you know I think you know the old adage everybody's in sales. Well, I was in consulting for many years and there's a lot of sales involved with that. So there's that part of it which is great to to be able to refine that that aspect of it to be more dedicated to to selling an actual product and services and things like that. Um, but then on the product management side, this is the side where I think a lot of us really, we, we use these products all the time. We've used them throughout our careers um, and we have these ideas of how they actually could be, could be better or might change or how they actually work. And to actually work with a product management team on this is fascinating. So we get to see the insides, literally the insides of everything that we make and the decisions that have to go into that and to how, how we have to weigh those um, and how we proceed forward uh, with things is, is, is great. So, I don't know if I can really say if there's any one necessarily one thing. I mean, I, I guess if I had to say if there's anything that, and this is going to sound very cliche, but I actually enjoy working with the customers the most. Yeah, uh, I bet. I, I really do. That, that if there's one thing, it, it is. And honestly, I just love speaking with customers about whatever challenges they may have with whatever application it might, might be. Uh, but that really, really brings it out, I think, to, to, to work with those customers, hear what they're experiencing, and hopefully have a solution for them. That's that. That's the best thing you can really come up with. But just talking with them and explaining with how how the products work, how how they maybe need to think about their their challenge differently, how they could approach it. Um, that, that that's what I think gives me the most joy out of the job. I guess. Yeah, yeah, and that and. When I'm thinking about how you're working with the product managers to do that, to actually meet that that goal, that's an interesting division of labor because they're sort of the masters of the actual equipment and you have the expertise on how it's used. Can you talk any more about how that 
how that works? It's it's certainly been an evolution, uh-huh. uh, which is but but it's fantastic. I think you know this is the beauty of working with a uh, a company that's relatively small, uh, where we have the ability to actually have a direct line of communications with with the product management team and to have very open conversations uh, about why. Uh, you know why a product should should work this way or doesn't work that way, and I think we're seeing you know now. So the ADM role is relatively new. Uh, we've only had it, I believe, I think three years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, as it's as it's grown and as we expect it to continue to grow, we're going to see even more involvement with all of those groups, but product management in particular, uh, as we as we kind of are, are you know developing new products, refining current products. Uh, we get to kind of get to really help guide that a little bit. But again, from the application side of it, uh, how actually users want it, what they're going to they're going to expect. Carrie, let me turn to you. Um, you and Brock, you've both, you joined at about the same time and it was just a few months ago since, um, since you, you came to join in situ, but you both have a lot of experience. I want to talk to you a little bit about your particular area of focus. Obviously, you, to do what you do, need expertise um, in your particular application and all the sub-applications that that includes, right? You just recently did a webinar for us where you covered a lot of territory and different types of applications. Um, um, what does that look like for you as the ADM for surface water? Um, what exactly can you, I guess, maybe give us an idea of what you do cover? Oh, goodness. That's a really good question because there is a lot there. I mean, so it would be anything from rivers to streams to reservoirs. And, uh, you know, we, we could be looking at irrigation ditches and agriculture fields. We could be looking at uh stormwater systems. Uh, my background is actually in stormwater when I worked for the geological survey, um, did work on a stormwater program there. So I have a lot of expertise there. I'm really spending a lot of time in the field with a lot of various customers. So they could be people monitoring algae blooms on reservoirs. They could be stormwater systems. They could be customers working in estuaries. There's a, a wide range of customers out there that we are able to help with. Um, you know, a lot of these groups are working in different areas, but on on common goals and applications. So, you know, it's, it's kind of all tied together as far as the chemistry and the biology and these kind of things are concerned. So whatever is happening upstream is inevitably going to happen downstream. Mm-hmm. So it's, it really all is kind of tied together. Okay. All right. Well, Brock, let me put the same question to you just in terms of the coastal side of things. What does that include and where are you spending some of your time these days? So as early as this morning, I was trying to define that myself, you know, where the coastal application uh, within situ begins and where it kind of ends. And to be honest, I kind of felt that, uh, you know, as far inland as a river or a stream that is tidally influenced or a canal that's tidally influenced out into the estuaries and onto the shorelines, uh, you know, where there's brackish water and obviously out to the more open water in the uh, coastal region. Um, And, you know, depending on the customers, it could go as far out as, you know, even blue water in some very specific applications. But, um, so I think that's kind of where the coastal application lies. And of course, you know, the U S and, you know, all over the world, something like, what is it like 70% of people live on the coast within a hundred miles of the Mm -hmm. coastline. Is it Mm -hmm. 80%? It's a crazy number. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's so much, there's a ton of coastline, a lot of people doing work there. And I think there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of potential for the application. 
I would add to that one thing that's interesting for I think for particularly for Brock and Carrie's role, obviously representing, uh, you know, representing surface water and, and coastal. But the big thing that I think for all the ADMs is that we are all very aware of what each other is doing, not only with, with our own applications, but what other what the others may be doing with their applications, because they do cross over. Um, as, you know, I think as Carrie pointed out, you know, with, with, a, with a river system, when you start getting close to a, to the mouth of a river, well, now you may be, may be tidally influenced. So now, wait, there may be, you know, maybe, maybe some things that Brock is doing are going to cross over on there. And then throw in there that, geez, by the way, there's actually some groundwater seepage going on there. Um, this is a, it's a perfect area where all three of us have to come together um, to really look at, you know, what, what may be going on there and what is the best solution for a customer, what products might be ideal. We always like to think of how we, we operate as it's more of a Venn diagram. Uh, we have a lot of overlap. It sounds to me like a great deal for not only the the sales team that you're assisting and and others within the company, but of course for the customer too, that if you're working as a team, then they're getting the benefit of all your experience. Absolutely. And so that can only be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I to add to what Adam was saying, you know, I live in Florida, so I've, you know, spend most of my time there. Uh so a lot of my stories begin there. But um, you know, back in 2017, 2018, Lake Okeechobee had a very large uh, blue-green algae bloom. Um, and all of that water uh, in Lake Okeechobee goes either uh, west down the Caloosahatchee River or uh, east and ends up in uh, uh, on the east coast of Florida. You know, all that, that green tide, they called it, came out and ended up in the estuaries and caused a huge problem on the coast. And simultaneously... Uh, there was a very large red tide coming in from offshore red tide being a large algae bloom made up of Carinia brevis. It's a small diatom. It's kind of reddish in color when it blooms and of course creates huge amounts of toxins in the water and it originates offshore. It's very natural. And as it moves inshore, uh, you know, there's a lot of studies that show that it can take up a lot of the nutrients that come from offshore and help the red tide uh, bloom even more. So, at the same time as we had a green algae tide coming from Lake Okeechobee into the estuaries, we also had a red tide meeting there. And it was just a, it, it turned into a huge water quality nightmare for Florida. And that's a great way of overlapping, you know, the surf, how the surface water affects the coastal areas. And in Florida, of course, we have issues with uh, pulling groundwater and saltwater intrusion coming in um, into the groundwater. And again, that's another great, example of that that overlap between the coastal and the groundwater applications. So Adam, we know groundwater as an application covers a lot more than just level measurements, right? So could you break that down for us a little bit and talk a little bit about your areas of focus? Yeah, no, groundwater is a, I think level has been the one of the main folk focuses of uh, of groundwater for many years. It's also is, was where in situ was founded. Uh, that that's our core part. Uh, so that's what we one of the first instruments we developed was a submersible pressure transducer for groundwater applications. Uh, but in groundwater now, I think there's a while level is is absolutely critically important. You must have it. You you need to understand it. It is it's it's fundamental to everything we're going to do. It's actually groundwater quality that's really starting to to really drive uh, many decisions that are being made. Many of the issues that we're seeing. Um, and that's not just, um, not just, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people think of groundwater quality as like a contamination type thing, uh, where there's, you have to remediate groundwater. Someone spilled 
some chemical on the ground, it seeped in there and it got into the groundwater and, and it needs to be cleaned up. Of course, that is happening. It's happening all over the world. That is a, you know, you have to, we have to consider that. But we're also now looking at just more from a water resources standpoint, um, where you have to look at the actual quality of that water as we're extracting more groundwater. Um, there's also things like aquifer storage recovery that's happening now. So now we're, we're actually taking surface water, injecting it into groundwater for storage. Well, we have to maintain the quality of that water. We need to make sure that there's good water coming in and that there's also still good water coming out. Um, another interesting one uh, is actually is um, is a saltwater intrusion in coastal areas. And this is a, a critical part because it really is ultimately a, a quality issue. Um, and as, as again, as, as we think we've mentioned previously is the the idea that there's more more people on the coasts these days and that that groundwater resource is being used along the coast and so as we do that we're going to get saltwater intruding in uh, and we need to be we need to be measuring that uh, and to be looking at that to really protect those those ultimate water resources there's some amazing stories of of um of uh, there's actually a group on the, on the east coast of the United States which is actually um, using their uh, there it's a water supply well and they're very concerned about how much their how much salt water they could be pulling in because they're have a, they're having a population issue their population is booming but it's not booming all year round it's only booming during the summer it's more of a resort community and so they're more concerned about well how how cyclical is this just over over the the course of a year how seasonal is it and so they want to be able to be to be monitoring their groundwater uh, for that, you know, for the salt water, and they're using just a conductivity measurement for that, um, so that they can decide where they want to get their water supply from. So this is a critical part. I mean, again, this is you're talking now the water supply for a, you know, again a major coastal city uh, is trying to figure this out, um, and they they have to look at their at the, the, the groundwater quality. It's not just a level question. Yeah, all the time. yeah. So many questions and mm-hmm. so many aspects to this field of work that you've all found yourselves in. Carrie, you had mentioned that you spent some time with the USGS, even take us maybe a little bit back from there. Just tell us briefly how you did get involved in this line of work. Yeah, so I actually went to school for meteorology and ended up transitioning into the environmental science field because I really like some of the field-based classes that I took. So I took um, a geochemistry class, for example, and an oceanography class. And I I really liked seeing all the... um, all the different ways that water is kind of shaping our world, right? So then I I ended up going to a soil and water conservation district meeting where I I met an employee of the U.S. Geological Survey and she kind of introduced me to the um, water resources division. And she said, hey, here's a a number for one of the supervisors here at this water science center. Why don't you, you know, give him a ring and see if maybe you can start as an intern? And I said, all right, that sounds great because, you know, I'm a college kid. I need a job one day, right? So, um, one thing led to another and I, I got that internship and I then converted it into a permanent position and was there for about nine years. And it was a fantastic experience. And I would definitely recommend the field to, you know, just about anybody who has an interest in science. I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. And you mentioned that when you were there, your primary focus was a stormwater project. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's correct. I was on an urban hydrology program in in Metro Atlanta. Um, We had a bunch of sites. I mean, I I think when I was there, we had somewhere around 40, 45 sites where we were measuring stream discharge along with uh, water quality. And we also were were measuring precipitation. and at the, we were also collecting samples with automatic samplers as, along with collecting them manually as well with the end goal of really seeing what was in the water um, that we needed to report for permitting requirements. And what was it like working for that organization? Was it, was there a lot of pressure? Was it 
intense? Was it collegial? I'm curious. (laughs) All the above. (laughs) (laughs) So it definitely was intense because, you know, there was always the uh, legal defensibility that we had to worry Mm -hmm. about. Every bit of data that we were collecting could be brought into court. And in a few different occasions, the data was actually brought to court. Um, For sediment in particular was one instance that stood out. But um, yeah, it was was a, a very professional environment for the most part uh but of course we we did have our collegial moments as well we we all like to hang out and have a good time so I, yeah it was a good group of people and it was a good time and your your focus is then it sounds like been primarily the eastern united states is that right to to date so my experience with the U.S. Geological Survey was really just in the metro Atlanta area. After that, I've really kind of expanded to the majority of the U.S. So I've, I've done a lot of travel up the East Coast, but I've also gone out to, you know, California and Alaska and Canada and, and you know, Brazil and some other areas as well. So this uh, career has actually taken me all over the world. And, and then the knowledge you gathered, does that translate out to the rest of the country, the rest of the world? Does that seem like, okay... I know how this works. I wouldn't say that I know how the world works. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, but I do know that, you know, some of the monitoring issues that folks are having in one area of the world, they're really going to be similar to what folks in other areas of the world are going to be experiencing as well. So, you know, we all are tied in together that we all need to know, you know, how this equipment works to get the best data out of it. And that's kind of what I've been hoping to spread across the world myself. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. Okay, Brock, you and I, even though you've only been here a short time, we have already had a chance to travel a couple times and have a couple conversations and stuff. So I have to ask, how does a football playing farm kid from Missouri get into water monitoring on the coastal? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good question. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, to answer your question about the farming and uh, part, I grew up in, you know, Northwest Missouri and, um, growing up, I loved being on the farm, but I never had aspirations to work on the farm. Um, I was always very interested in creatures, <laughs> uh, big and small, you know, if there's a weird snake outside, my parents would bring me out to show it to me so I could tell them what it was. Um, you know, that's, I just always was reading about different animals and, uh, my favorite ones were of course, marine animals. And, uh, so, uh, Growing up, I went to college and found, and I actually went to college to play football at a small, small uh, Division two school up in Northwest Missouri, um, Northwest Missouri State University, actually. And they adopted a marine biology program my second, my sophomore year, um, and I jumped into that, thinking it was bizarre that I could get a marine biology degree in the dead center of the country, but you can. Um, <laughs> you just have to go take some classes in, uh, at the university of Southern Mississippi, a couple summers, which okay. I did. And, uh, I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. You know, I was, we we're out on, uh, you know, doing these fishing sampling trips out on, out on the ship, the Tommy Monroe from, uh, the university of Southern Mississippi. Um, you know, we were doing, you know, we we're out in the salt marshes, uh, classifying different types of, uh, salt marsh grasses and, uh, you know, collecting different specimens and classifying them, <laughs> preserving them, you know, uh, doing a lot of really cool stuff. And I got an internship there one summer, uh, helping a PhD student do his research and, uh, found out that I love field work. 
And so, um, you know, that kind of translated to me, like looking around at different schools to finish my, finish my degree and, uh, ended up at the university of South Florida, which is, uh, the Marine program is located in St. Petersburg, which is where I have resided now for almost 12 years. Um, and you know, I just kept pursuing it. I finished my bachelor's degree and I got a couple environmental jobs, uh, down in, down in Florida. And I, you know, went to grad school and studied marine science in grad school and got a master's degree in it. You know, it's one of those things, uh, you know, I started with a marine biology degree, right? And every marine biologist will tell you, uh, you know, people ask you what you do and you tell them, well, I'm a marine biologist. And about one in three people will say, oh man, I was going to do that at one point, but then I just didn't. Like then I went to marketing or I went into, uh, I don't know, sports medicine or I became a doctor or whatever. And I'm always the one who has to be like, well, I did, you know, I kept with it and I just continued studying marine science and marine biology. And and that's kind of where I ended up. And Adam, now I think you first connected with Institute as a customer. Am I right? I did. Yes. I've been a customer for, uh, yeah, 20 Four years, I think. All right. Well, take us back a little bit before that and tell us a little bit about your story into the industry. The, well, before the beginning of time. Is the way I <laughs> Just a little uh, bit a little farther bit, back. Yeah, a little further back. <laughs> no, I, um, uh, yeah, my journey here was, was, was a little different. Um, I, so I really got interested in just in kind of earth sciences in general and, and, um, that's what kind of drew me into it from, from really even in just like high school and things like that. I always wanted to, every time I'd look out across the, you know, whether the countryside or the ocean or lakes or whatever, I want to know how, how did it get there? Why is it there? And I, uh, that was what really kind of drew me into the earth sciences. And um, so I ended up pursuing a geology degree in, in uh, undergrad. Um, and that, uh, you know, that I think served me pretty well because I actually went to, went to college in Connecticut at Wesleyan University. And there we also had a pretty strong kind of coastal program which was interesting. So I actually did a lot of uh, like coastal geology um, and coastal geomorphology type type aspects. Um, but I always knew when I was there that this idea of hydrology was where there was a lot of really interesting and practical work going on. Um, so once I got out of undergrad, I went and became a consultant and I became a hydrogeologist, um, moved out to Colorado and, uh, became a hydrogeologist, um, and effectively did that, uh, well, almost 20 years. <laughs> um, and during that time, went and got my master's degree, um, in engineering and, uh, kind of, you know, switched around with a few different companies and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, but after 20 years and, uh, and using in situ products all the time is actually, I think it's, you know, it dates me a little bit, but I actually, my first aquifer test I did, I actually used a Hermit 1000 and most people listening to this will have no idea what that is. <laughs> but those of you that do, wow, there's definitely a bond there because that's a, a really classic piece of, of, of equipment and, and actually in the part of the history of hydrogeology, to be honest. And uh, that's what I learned on. And so... Um, that that was kind of the, the kind of the introduction to kind of this idea of instrumentation too for me, and and that became a, a big part of it. And that's really where I actually ended up defining a lot of my consulting career was becoming more of an expert with how to collect data. Uh, there was also the analysis part of it. Did a lot of that, some modeling, you know, computer modeling, that sort of thing, uh, as well. But really, kind of. Uh, 
kind of became an expert with uh, how do, how you actually collect data, do certain field type activities, and, and really the applications of this stuff. Um, so as I said, did that for for twenty years, and then uh, actually turns out that uh, it was actually consulting to in situ um, as 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 a hydrologist, and um, we're able to kind of create this application development manager role, and made sense to kind of come on in and take it on as a, as a full-time gig. Yeah, it's so, been a good fit. Yeah, Seems, it's been a lot of fun. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so what I'm hearing amongst the three of you is beyond just a profound and deep interest in science is a willingness, if not even a passion for getting out into the field. Is that accurate? Field yeah. days are the best days. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> field yes. days are the best days. All right, why? Carrie, what do you, what, what's great about being out there doing it? Well, who wants to be stuck behind a desk? <laughs> Enough said, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just so nice being in nature, you know, and, and really getting to see and experience what is actually out there. You know, I, when you're out in the field, you get a, a firsthand opportunity to see what effects are being had on the environment. You know, how, how are we as humans really affecting you know, what's going on in this particular stream, for example, or maybe a hurricane has come through and you now know that seven roads have washed away because of hurricanes and other disasters like that. Um, it's really just amazing to see for yourself what is actually going on with our world. Yeah. Yeah. Brock, what's a favorite kind of field project for you? Like one I want to do or one I... Yeah, <laughs> <just> a, <laughs> either. Anything on a boat. Anything <laughs> yeah, on a boat. Yeah, yeah I get that. So, uh, I had a good one and it's not a complex one. It was just kind of a fun one that we had somebody come to us in my previous job asking us about setting up a tide gauge that would monitor water depth, temperature and salinity in the Delaware River. The reason being is this consulting company was wanting to do some remediation along the shorelines of the Delaware River. There's usually a lot of kind of marsh grasses and, you know, some forest growth along the shore. And of course, the most of the river along, you know, within Wilmington and, and some of the other cities there is very, very developed. So, of course, this is affecting water quality. You don't have the same nutrient cycling and all these different processes going on when you've got hard infrastructure versus you know, a very productive salt marsh. So in this one area, they're wanting to find out what the tides did on a daily basis, kind of measure that uh, for a month and understand the temperature and salinity changes as the tide changes. And so it's very cool because, you know, they're, they're trying to basically go in and lay down marsh, marsh grass and try to grow that environment where there's elsewhere like I said, a lot of infrastructure. The trip itself was pretty fun. I worked with a service tech and he and I went out and, you know, we had the the site was at the very end of this spit of land that was about 900 feet long. So we were, had to park 900 feet away from where we wanted to be and then tromp with all of our tools and all the, the, uh, the well for the instrument, everything to set the well. We had to walk all that through big boulders, unstable gravel, you know, forest on the spit. It was very <laughs> kind of a difficult walk out there. And we're both, you know, fairly fit people. So we were able to do it, but it was not easy. And we get out there and the tide is completely out. We had to time it that way. Tide is out. And that's good because we need to get to a spot where there's, where the ground is always submerged, where we can put the uh, instrument well, but we need it to be low tide because it has pretty significant tidal swings. It'll go from, you know, one foot to six feet within a few hours. 
so we're racing the clock here and uh you know we we started setting up the well we're climbing all over these big boulders trying to do it you know we probably were breaking some osha regulations this whole time <laughs> i don't think we we're wearing hard hats um but you know and as we're doing this the water keeps coming up and up and up we're literally having to drive this pipe in get it bracketed to some sort of structure and of course once we get there we have to figure out where we can mount it you know it we didn't know anything going into it aside from a few photos and some Google Earth images we'd looked at. So literally just, you know, nine, 10 hours that day, just doing what we could to beat the beat the tide. And then when the tide finally came in, we were only half done. So we had to wait until the next day to come back out when the tide was out again so that we could restart it and complete the job. And it was just kind of a interesting day because we're, you know, fighting the tides. We're trying to get this, we're climbing all these boulders like we're rock lizards. <laughs> trying to trying to get these uh this well in so that somebody can take a month of measurements for a big you know potentially big remediation project and it was just kind of a interesting interesting trip that we took to uh to try to help the river get a little healthier you know yeah yeah it sounds arduous <laughs> it, yeah, sounds, it was <laughs> it's like a good adventure it was it was a very frustrating fun adventure <laughs> yeah yeah um Carrie what about you any project or two that stands out to you as either particularly fun or challenging or rewarding? Oh gosh, so my entire time at the survey was full of all different kinds of fun projects, but I I always particularly love the big storm sampling days when, you know, we... You had to wait for a certain amount of rain, you know, to collect a sample. You know, the water level had to go up a certain amount before you could start collecting your sample. And you had to pace it just right so that you had uh, samples that came over the entire hydrograph, right? Well, sometimes... Every last one of our samplers, and we had about 30 of these across our project, would collect a sample. So we would have everybody on our team storming out to the field to go collect these samples and everything, and you'd have to bring them back. And it was a mess and a half trying to keep all this stuff organized, right? But those were some of the most fun days, too, because, you know, it was just, here's a sample over here. We got to process that, make sure the paperwork stays with it. And, you know, you're joking around with your teammates the whole time. You know, you're telling all your good stories about life and your your other particular field adventures. So those are probably some of my favorite memories. That sounds great. And something I know about you that you shared is that you, from childhood or a bit of a weather nerd, right? I am a total weather nerd from way back in the day. I I used to actually sit with my family and read the newspaper with them and you know they would read the actual news but I'd be like no no let's get to the good part and <laughs> flip the newspaper over and I I would analyze the weather across the world with either you know my mom or my grandpa or whoever was around and was willing to entertain me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Adam, what about you? Going back through that catalog. Yeah, it, it, it is a big catalog. Um, what's interesting, the projects that give me, that, that really get me motivated um, are uh, traveling to interesting places. And that could be anything. Um, I've done a lot of work internationally. Of, I, I think I've done field work on every continent except Antarctica, which I want to get at some point. I I'm really sure want water will. monitoring there. I want to um, go too. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think going to go kind of getting out and and seeing different places and working with different people, um, you know, and I, they they can all be, they can all be good, but I find that those are, those are some of the most unique things because you, you have to, the environment is going to challenge you. It's going to push you in some way. Um, 
you know, the other thing I also say is that I think as Brock said, any field work that's on a boat is really fun. I agree. I'd also say any field work that happens on skis is really good. Um, <laughs> that's one thing that I've done. I actually did a lot of snow hydrology work and a lot of it's not on skis. And that is a, that's a, it's a lot of fun and it's just enjoyable time. Doesn't matter what you're doing. You may be, you know, you know, you're just maybe whatever data you might be collecting. Uh, it, it's just, it's a fun day. To, to be out there. What are you going like from site to site on site ski? to site? Yep. Yep. Site to site and just getting out or just getting out to a site and uh-huh. uh, whether you're, you know, whether you're, you're doing a snow survey or you're going out to, you know, a station that's out there or, or in a lot of cases, sometimes you're actually going out, you're on skis going out to collect a surface water sample, to go to a well, to collect a sample, to install instrumentation. You have to get out. That's just your mode of transportation. So I think it's interesting I, I, for part of me, a lot of it's, a lot of it is the journey. I think no matter what it is, the journey of, of getting to what you're trying to, you're trying to go for. Yeah. Um, but you got to make sure you do it the, the, the right way. The other one I would add though, is, is it's also, it's the interesting all projects, I think, can be interesting, but some are more unique than others. And we always joke about this. I know you guys have heard stories, this, some of the stories before, but one I always like to tell is that I happened to be uh, in Hawaii doing an aquifer test um, in 2011 when the uh, earthquake happened, the earthquake that, that caused a major tsunami that impacted Japan. Um, and we had just finished up a, a, a pumping test and we were in recovery uh, at this point. We were monitoring recovery and we found out about the tsunami. And that's a whole separate story that I would love to have with people at a different time about that experience. But the next morning, we everything was fine and, and we were heading back out to the site. And we had a bit of a challenge because one of the roads that we took to the site got washed out because of some of the larger waves that could come in. Everything was fine. We were all good. And we had to stop. We went to a coffee shop and we just had to wait. And we're like, well, we got to wait till the road opens, all that. And we're in the, we're in the car and we pull up. We're thinking about the site and all this. And suddenly we realize that we have been monitoring groundwater on the coast of Hawaii during a tsunami. We think we got some amazing data. And it turns out we did just totally wow. by chance that we could actually see the tsunami signal in the groundwater that we were monitoring and a total random act and wow. it, it had no bearing on the project. We have this great data set that actually shows the how the groundwater changed, how the groundwater level changed uh, as a result of the tsunami. That's great. So mm-hmm. I'm curious from your perspective, um, what do the customers want? What do they need? What are they looking for? What are some of their <laughs> questions that you that you hear? What are the the common commonalities amongst those customers? At the end of the day, the customer just wants the best data that they can possibly get, right? And there's a lot of things that go into that. So there's a lot of questions about uh, what piece of equipment should I be using? Uh, or did I choose the right one? Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> How do we calibrate this equipment? What maintenance do I need to be doing on this piece of equipment? Uh, what's the best method of deploying this equipment? There's, you know, and these, these two can definitely uh, add in some other questions there, I'm sure. I think you really <laughs> summarized it well, you know, how basically how, what type of instrument do I need to answer my questions that my project is asking? There's lots of different instruments out there. There's a lot of nuances with, uh, different types. Uh, and you know, sometimes, and no, nobody can be an expert in everything. So a lot of them come to us and say, am I doing this right? Essentially, you know, what Carrie was saying, how do, am I maintaining it right? Um, am I, 
am I setting it up right and deploying it right? That's that's really the biggest thing. As a hydrotech, we used to always say that we were a jack of all trades, master of none, <laughs> because we had to use so many different pieces of equipment, like Brock was saying. Yeah, I think I agree 100 percent that it really is just this. How can the how can the equipment actually be used in the application that they have there? And are they are they doing it right? And is this something unique? Is it is it not? Is, is this something we've seen before? Because they may not have seen that whatever it is they're they're trying to do. And, and, and what do they need to to get to where they want to go? Uh, you know, can they get the best data they can to answer their their question? Um I think there's there is also a component of it too of 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 how stuff works, how it might need to work, uh, things you need to consider. Uh, you know, we, we we think we you know many users are, are are certainly they're more advanced users. They they will understand the the chemistry and the physics and things like that 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 will go into the instruments. But there are certainly some that that while they certainly have a very good grasp of that stuff, may not understand the subtleties of what you might see. Where it's like you know where to use a vented versus non vented pressure sensor, or to recognize why you need to have a you know a a, a flow cell to be used for dissolved oxygen measurements in some cases. Uh, those types of things are 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 good good examples where right you you want to explain to customers that there are ways that that they can solve this problem or things to consider um, and to let them make that decision of like is this valuable to you or not um, because that's also the thing there's some trade-offs that you might have you might want the best data but I can't get the the very best all mm-hmm. the time there's just physical limitations to it or financial limitations whatever it might be it, and that's I think where I think a lot of times that we will come in and try to help them um, help them is give them the information to, for them to make a decision? Yeah, I could see that if you've got a project and your goal is to get the best data you can and you want to be confident, you know, that you're you're making the good choice, that you could get really locked in on using a certain type of equipment and that there could be some reluctance to consider alternatives. I mean, is that something you've seen or even had to contend with yourselves to a certain degree? Yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, everybody who uses our instrumentation has a day job. And that day job includes lots of tasks they have to do aside from just monitoring. You know, some people are dedicated to just monitoring, but a lot of people, you know, like a reservoir manager uh, has to, one of their responsibilities is the health of their reservoir. And they need something out there that's going to collect the data and get them the data that they need so they can do the rest of their job. If the instrument's not getting them the data that they need, then that's when they're saying, how can I do this better? How can I, am I deploying it right? Am I maintaining it right? That's when these questions come up because they have, you know, their day job that they have to do and and the the instrument is a tool to get that done. And so when you find something that works um, or, you know, even if it doesn't work, you know, everybody gets a little set in their ways sometimes. And some people are quick to try new technology and want to do the next want to find the next cool thing uh, a lot of people will use the same instrument for 30 years because <laughs> that's what they know and that's what they started with and that's what they're going to keep mm-hmm. using because it quote unquote works <laughs> so i there's definitely uh, a lot of that in the industry the other challenge there too is also i think it comes into the the ease of use of the equipment there's options there i, I think for for folks to realize that that for customers to realize that there are uh, other alternatives to getting either 
again, better data or, or it's easier to collect your data, uh, more efficient so you can get on with, with your other job. Um, or you can just do the job that you have to do in a more efficient way and, you know, get, get better results and be hopefully be happier. Yeah. And kind of, I'll just kind of tie these guys' statements up a little bit. A lot of what we really run into is that people kind of have fears and anxieties about taking on these new technologies, right? Um, but that's kind of where where we come into play, really. We're, we're here to help the customers out. We're here to answer those difficult questions and in those difficult situations so that people really do get comfortable with the equipment that they are using, whether, you know, they're, they're coming from no background with equipment whatsoever or just some other type of equipment and you know they're finally making a switch to ours for example we're we're really here to support everybody and their decisions to kind of come to come to our equipment and help use it the best that they can with the application development managers you're talking to people who've actually done monitoring in the field a lot of it we've been there we've seen this stuff we appreciate everything that you're experiencing from the challenges of the instrumentation to setting, you know, as, as Brock said, like setting things up to install, you know, doing an installation to just how you manage your data, what, whatever it might be, uh, to how, how you pay for it, um, you know, how, you, how your, your boss is going to perceive it or how your stakeholders are going to perceive it. We've been there and we can, we can uh, empathize with you on it and help, help kind of guide you in, in what, how, you know, how going with the right piece of equipment could help you out. What have been some of the big turning points in terms of technology and how you do the work? It's a hard question to answer because there really have been so many different advances in technology over the last, you know, couple decades, honestly. So I think I I would say from a from a a sensing standpoint, I think I I think optical sensors are, are really big. That, that's kind of as, as a technology has, has been probably the biggest, probably one of the, one of the biggest things out there, whether it's, um, you know, there's like I said, optical dissolved oxygen. There's, you know, with, with I think various, like, I think, well, turbidity has kind of been optical for a little while, right. but fluorometers, that sort of thing, that the idea of getting into, into, into fluorometry as a science uh, and, and using that for, for sensing. I mean, the reality is that, you know, looking at I kind of, I know, at least on, on our product line, you know, we say, yeah, you know, submersible pressure transducers are, are they've been around for a while, <laughs> you know, and that hasn't really changed. But but the other side to it, though, is then on all of those sensors is what's on the back end of it. And now you're getting, obviously, things can be smaller, can be faster uh, in terms of data acquisition, lighter weight, lower power. Um, and that starts really making a, a, a bigger difference because now we have um, your data management can be handled uh, in a different way. So now you're looking at mobile applications, um, just less expensive instrumentation, um, easier ways to integrate with your with your data. And then there's the, the, the idea of the software side of it, where then how you actually take that data in and actually process it and make it usable. And I'm not, not necessarily like doing data interpretation. It's just about your management of your data and bringing it in. Um, and that may just be from a direct, you know, direct read from a, from a sensor itself. And like I said, through, through a, a mobile application or through a specialized, even just computer software, you can actually take all that type of stuff in. Uh, but then there's also the other part in there is is the telemetry side of it. Telemetry has become so easy to use now that it's it's a it's a common thing. I mean, I think I think we almost we kind of forget about it in in today's day and age of, of cell phones. That I mean, I would even argue, you know, 20, 25 years ago, that was a 
you know, not, not even an option, especially in the in the environmental field. Right. Right. Um, and so now we really, really see a lot, a lot more that that I mean, if you're not telemetering your data, well, why not? Um, because there, there's you, you can get so much more um, out of it. Um, so I think, that, I don't know, those, those are a few things. I don't know, you guys probably have Yeah, well, thoughts. when you were, when you were talking about the fluorometers in particular, it, you know, it, it made me think of how it seems like we're trying to take these, these big laboratory instruments, we're mm-hmm. trying to kind of compress them into an itty bitty little sensor that makes them easy to put out in the field to get, you know, in essence, some of those same types of measurements that we would get in the lab. Right. So that's been a pretty, pretty interesting yeah. thing yeah. from my perspective. And where things are going, I think there, there's a lot out there. I think different uh, nutrient monitoring is going to be a critical part uh, and how that works. And I think as Carrie pointed out, you, you know, we can do this already. There's lab instruments that can actually handle this. That there's, there's methods out there and they can do this. But how do you do that now in a portable battery powered instrument that can be deployed in a coastal environment, in a river or, re- or reservoir, or in a groundwater environment, in Antarctica, you know, wherever it might be. How do you how do you make that? Um, that's the 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 challenge that we really have. Yeah, and I, I I think back. I hear Matt, our product manager for software solutions, in my head talking about you know always making the distinction between software and modern software, modern app. You know, this is on you're getting something on on a device that you already have in your pocket. Right. And then that goes to the telemetry as well. Yeah, we, I mean, people who've worked out in the field have been using telemetry for years. What's different now, though? What, what is that? And what does that mean? I, I think you hit a point earlier when you talked about things getting smaller and cheaper and getting lower cost instruments. In the past, you would have a large instrument that was very, very power hungry. And the radio telemetry you know, mm-hmm. whatever you're using was also very power hungry. It required a lot of solar panels and big batteries or required, you know, at, to be plugged into some sort of a- AC power outlet. And nowadays, you know, you can set out multiple instruments, each with cellular telemetry that sends you far more data than the old ones do at a much higher frequency using D cell batteries. I mean, it's just crazy. The, the scalability that has happened since technology allows things to become smaller and cheaper. You know, you can, people can purchase more instruments and they can get a lot more data over a much larger spatial area. And it's, it's very exciting, you know, when they can do that for the cost of what it used to be to have one instrument in one spot. Yeah. I'm also remembering back to the days of coding these data loggers too and programming these data loggers and what a mess and a half that would be too. So now, you know, it takes five minutes to program a view link, for example, on your cell phone, you know, and then it's transmitting to, you know, Hydra viewers back in the day. You were lucky if you had a keypad on your data logger. (laughs) And then if you did have a keypad on your data logger, it was click, 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 click. Okay, now I'm at the menu that I need to be at. And, you know, 30 minutes later, you may have, you know, programmed your data logger correctly. And if it if it was an old data logger and you just needed to replace it, you're wondering, do I have the config file for this that I can just (laughs) upload so I don't have to redo all of this manually? (laughs) (laughs) So now it's not such such a hassle anymore like it used to be. And that's really exciting to me personally. I was going to add the to Brock's point about data density. I think that's something that we're seeing is is a general trend uh, globally. Is that it's not just enough to have one point. We recognize now that things change spatially, and that we need to monitor 
you know, it, it, we have a, a greater density of points out there. And by having lower cost instrumentation, that's easier to deploy and all that. We can actually do that, which gives us better information about whatever phenomena we're trying to study. Um, you know, again, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the, I think when we all were coming up through, you know, our, our backgrounds and our, you know, a lot of our education and all that, a lot of times you'd have one data point for something. Oh, I got, you know, I have one tide gauge. I, st- I still see it. Tides are a great example. There's one tide gauge and it's like, great, that's it. But it represents, you know, 20 plus miles of coastline or more. And you're like, great, but it's going to be different. I need to know exactly how this very contoured coastline, how this might actually change. And by having lower cost instrumentation, you can actually get there. Right. I know we've just talked recently about a new feature on the Vusitu app around graphing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, while we at Insitu certainly have some cool projects and new products in development, do you think it's fair to say that we're going to see more rapid change and advancement in software and the way data is transmitted and managed and, and used than in actual new pieces of equipment? I hope so. <laughs> That's, I think, I, I think, I, I very strongly feel that, yes, I think the software is a, is a big part of it. I think it's a, a way that, that I think, well, backing up, I think the, the environmental instrumentation software is lagging behind where consumer, you know, everyday software might be. Our cell phones right now, our, our smartphones, all that have apps on them that do amazing things. And we're just starting, I think the, it's, this has always been the case. I think the environmental field has been a little lagging behind in turning, adopting that or getting it brought into that space. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, but I think now, I think with current users, new users coming up, they're so experienced with how this mobile world works that's what they expect. So, and the thing is they can actually create a lot of that stuff rapidly. So I think, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of, of, of pretty rapid change in those, you know, in some of those features there on the software side. That's exciting. <laughs> Very. <laughs> and here's the thing, the planet's changing, right? This work mm-hmm. is getting more important than ever. Um, I'm curious how, for each of you, how you see your particular application area, uh, responding to a warming climate and, you know, what role it needs to play, should play, will play, and how that changes as we, you know, move further and further into the climate crisis. Obviously a very big question. Yeah. From a, um, from a groundwater perspective, I think, um, I think groundwater um, is uniquely positioned to 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 help actually with climate change in terms of thinking of it as a water supply, as a more sustainable water supply. I'll let Carrie and Brock speak about the surface water side of things and how that might work from a you know just actually thinking of it from a, a again a water supply for for life. Um, groundwater is is it can be a great resource for that, but it needs to be well managed. Um, and that's where I think a lot of the monitoring is actually going to come in because if you monitor it, you can actually manage it. The, uh, I, I think things like aquifer storage recovery is going to be really important. Uh, I think to be able to take when we, when we start seeing bigger swings, um, in, 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 uh, storm events and precipitation events and things like that, we need to, we need to take the water when it's available and, and 
store it. It's got to be stored in a responsible way. Um, and you know, I think uh, ASR, Aquifer Storage Recovery, is is a reasonable one one reasonable solution to that. It's it's part of the solution. Um, and so there's going to be some a lot of managing with that that has to go along. Um, however, the other side to that, though, is as we get into uh, with warming climate, we also get rising sea levels. And I mentioned also before about saltwater intrusion on coastal mm-hmm. areas. That is going to become one of the largest concerns among coastal areas, um, especially any of those that rely on groundwater for their um for their drinking water supply or just the, the, the environments that are around there. Um, as that, um, as sea level rises and it starts impacting the groundwater or for that matter, just actually starts raising the groundwater. That's another side. This is not even just whether it's saltwater or freshwater. It's just that there's water coming in. Um, that is going to be a major issue. Um, it already, not should become, it is a major issue right now, today, in, in most coastal areas that are, are experiencing any kind of sea level rise. I think we're going to see groundwater issues in areas of the world that we haven't seen groundwater issues before. Um, I think of the polar regions in particular. Uh, melting permafrost is going to create some really interesting kind of groundwater surface water interaction issues. Um, that's going to have major implications for you know for habitats, for wildfire, for whatever you might might have. Um, all of that, it, and again. Monitoring is going to be the first step into actually better managing it. And I'm sure that's the same for surface water, but what would you two add to that? Yeah, I was, I was literally going to say it's very much the same for <laughs> surface water. Um, but, you know, as, as the temperature of the earth is kind of warming up right now, we can really see that the weather phenomena are really changing, right? Storms are becoming more severe. We're getting a lot of increased flooding that we didn't really experience before, right? So, I think a lot of um, what is kind of coming into people's minds right now is like, how can we better manage where this water is going, right? There's a lot of flood management that folks are starting to do, uh, whether that's increasing the amount of wetlands like Brock was kind of talking about before, or maybe creating artificial channels for some of this water to flow into. Um, A big thing that's kind of starting to take place is what's called regenerative agriculture. And Helen, I know you and I have kind of talked about this before, but if we can maybe increase the soil health, um, then maybe we can increase the storage capacity of water in our fields and in our uh, groundwater systems that way as well. So, and with monitoring, we can see if these, um, types of, of improvements, I guess you could say, if they're actually being effective or not as the, the earth continues to evolve. Right. I was just reading this morning of a program down in Sarasota, Florida, Sarasota Bay Estuary Program. And the lead of that organization put out a post and said, you know, we're going to be tackling water quality issues and we're going to be using uh, evidence-based uh, techniques rather than model-based techniques. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what has worked in the past for others uh, that we can translate to Sarasota Bay as opposed to running a model and seeing what we think might work. Um, and of course, you know, I, models are excellent and have a, have a lot of place, but I really appreciated that, you know, you're using an evidence-based approach to try to tackle your water quality issues in your estuary. Um, you know, what that takes is a lot of monitoring data, uh, not just after a problem has happened, but baseline data, you know, getting, sensors out in the water and understanding what the baseline is and seeing how it's changing over time um, and using that data to make decisions on how to best treat your water quality. If you're finding that it is, it is a, a 
subpar, I guess, or if it's, uh, you know, if your estuary is not healthy. But, you know, to your further point of, you know, global warming and how it affects uh, each of our applications, you know, the coastal and ocean is, you know, full of all the buzzwords, right? You know, the polar ice caps melting. So you got sea level rise. Um, you know, the, we've got a lot of carbon in the atmosphere that is being absorbed by the ocean, uh, which makes the oceans more acidic. So we have ocean, ocean acidification, uh, which is, of course is affecting, uh, anything that, that, uh, creates a, uh, calcium structure, calcium carbonate structure. Um, you know, coral reef die-offs, uh, all over the world is a, is a huge problem. Uh, biodiversity in general is being affected and uh, it's not always just because of the warming climate it's it's a lot of it is because of uh, coastal development you know I was at a uh, uh, talk last year and uh, somebody said that uh, there's a county on the east coast of Florida and uh, which one escapes me at the moment but uh, in the last 50 years it went from 10% development and 90% wetlands and it's completely switched in up to now and it's now 90 percent developed in 10 percent wetlands and you know we're talking about how to deal with surface water as it moves along the land and into the coast well typically what would happen is it would rain uh the surface water sits on the surface and kind of stays fairly close to where it was and it, and it uh you know gets cycled through a lot of plant material and and moves through the system very slowly whereas now we've got all this hardened ground we've got all this concrete and the same amount of water's coming but we've got all these houses and buildings that we need to keep dry so we channel all that water into you know a few canals and a few channels and it just carries with it a lot faster and a lot much a lot more volume all those nutrients that it normally would have just kind of left in the same spot and it carries them offshore and that's when you get large algae blooms that's when you get um a lot of uh uh hypoxic and anoxic zones. Climate change is, of course, a huge thing, but, um, you know, I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, land development and land use changes are also a huge issue that is uh, affecting the coastal communities and the coastal waters. And that's something, when you can see what's happening <laughs> and, and you can see what caused it to happen <laughs> and, um, you know, at least you're in a position where you're working toward being part of the solution. Right. Uh, but it's still got to be frustrating to be so close to it. Yeah, it is. But you also know that you're helping people who do the research and who do the monitoring, uh, get their job done and collect that data so that we understand how, what's happening and what's changing. So it leads to my next question about the young people coming into the industry and what you would say to them, those who are considering coming into the field in terms of the types of technology that they'll be working with, the opportunities they'll have, and the challenges they'll face. Well, first, I would tell them that they're coming into a really fun time right now, to be entirely honest. There are mm -hmm. so many different topics of research that are going on right now. So if there's anything that you can think of that you're interested in at all, there's probably somebody working on it that needs your help with it, right? Um, in addition, you know, there's all these new technological developments like we've kind of been talking about right now, which are really cool too, because it's going to make your life so much easier than it was in the past. Um, 
as you know, we all here can attest to mm-hmm. a little bit with difficulties in the past. Uh, so I, I think it's a really exciting time and I would wish anybody the best of luck and for sure contact any of us if you want any more information on anything we've talked about today. Yeah, I would stress to anyone coming into the field to have a, a, a diverse background. I think you have to have an appreciation for other aspects of science, of just technology. I think you have to have, you have to have, you have to be able to work with people. You have to kind of appreciate, uh, you know, how processes work. You have to understand how governments work because they, governments tend to be some of the largest uh, funding mechanisms for environmental monitoring. Okay, how does that funding come through? How do these government agencies actually work? But I also would say things like um, computer science, computer programming is essential. I know, I again, I, you know, I look at my kids and they're already getting into this at you know in middle school and that sort of thing. I didn't start learning that until I was in college. Um, absolutely, you have to have at least an appreciation. You don't have to be an expert in it, but have an appreciation for how to do computer programming and what might be capable. It allows you to have the conversation with others, whether it's you know, whether, whether it's, whether you're trying to get someone else to do, to, to work on a project for you, or you're again, trying to work with a product manager on how something might work, or you're trying to, uh, you know, come up with an innovative way of how to monitor, you know, a, a unique, a unique environmental situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm smiling over here. Cause I wanted to add to your list yeah. about how you need to be an HVAC technician. Yes. <laughs> you need to be an electrician. <laughs> you, need to, you need to be able to use basic tools, uh, basic yeah. hand Carpentry, tools, Carpentry. not even necessarily basic. Right. It gets pretty intense. And we have a basic understanding of uh, how a car works. The car works. Yep. There's the machinery. The truck. truck in case it yeah. breaks down out in the field. Chainsaws. You need. You need. But I, the other one that I also bring up too, I've run into a lot. You need to be comfortable. You know, lend this. We all. We all love being outside. You need to be comfortable in the outdoors, and that doesn't mean I just like it when it's sunny out. You have to be able to. to I, I'm hesitant to use the word, but be comfortable. But you, you need to survive in those environments. There, there are tough environments. Um, and you have to be able to, to do that. You have to at least not let it break you down. <laughs> be comfortable we, being uncomfortable. Being gets exactly it. We, be comfortable we, used uncomfortable. To, we used to storm sample at like two o'clock in yeah. the morning because, you know, that's when the rain would conveniently come right. when you needed that sample, right? But those were honestly some of the best times that we had mm-hmm. because how cool do you actually look though when you're in a truck with all the flashers going, you shut down a lane on a road and you're like, yeah. Yeah, I get to do <laughs> I'm this. so cool. When you spend a lot of time in the classroom or the office and you get used to being being indoors and you walk on sidewalks and everything and you go back out in the field, you know, you kind of remember like, Oh wow. Like it's really dirty out here. It's, yeah. it's really uncomfortable, <laughs> but you get into it and finally like just being muddy and being cold or being hot, you know, all that stuff. It, it doesn't bother you as much. Like That's eventually the day. bugs stop bothering you, you know, <laughs> right. like, What's that? That's all in one day. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, you got to get over it. Um, I would, and I think what you're saying, you know, you got to, you got, you got to have like a, you're not an expert in any, you want to be an expert in a few things, but yes. you know, you're not an expert in everything, but you certainly have, uh, I'd say a curiosity. That's a good, right? Way like yes. I have a pretty healthy curiosity of honestly groundwater, yeah. <laughs> um, but also like computer science and, uh, you know, electrical engineering and, and mechanical engineering and understanding mm-hmm. where like engineers come up with the answers that, that they do and how it affects, 
you know, like the instruments that I'm using. Um, you know, I'm, I would consider myself an expert in marine science and biology for sure. Um, but you know, in the water quality industry, I need to be more than just that, you know, from what my schooling is, I need to be an expert in, you know, how the sensor works. And, uh, if it doesn't work, why is it not working? You know, is, is there, uh, some programming issue that I did? I find that typically when something doesn't work, it's, it's usually my fault. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tech support loves me. Right. Um, but, um, but, you know, having a healthy curiosity is something a that movie, yeah. is, is a great, uh, great quality to have if you want to get into this field. Well, Carrie, Brock, Adam, thanks so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. And um, all I can say is that we're just so lucky to have you at in situ. And we're looking forward to how you continue to develop the application development manager role, both as individuals and as a team to support our customers in the field. So thank you so much. Thanks for having thank us. You. Thank you. This is Aquapod, brought to you by InSitu. You can find more episodes and subscribe to the podcast on our website, insitu.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please listen, share, and help us spread the word. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Adam Hobson, and Lauren Ryan, with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. And until then, take care out there.